Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Little Atoms with me, Neil Denny, and with Padre Greedy. Little Atoms is a talk show about ideas. Each show features a guest from the worlds of science, journalism, politics, academia, human rights, or the arts in conversation. If the show has a dominant and reoccurring theme, then it coalesces around the ideas of the Enlightenment, by which we mean freedom of expression, free inquiry, empirical rationalism, scepticism, the scientific method, secular humanism, and liberal democracy. These ideas find their antithesis in superstition, religious fundamentalism, fanaticism, totalitarianism, censorship and conspiracy theory. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting. And we're welcoming back an old guest, Francis Ween, tonight, who Padre is about to introduce. Good evening. Francis Ween is a writer, broadcaster and journalist. He's the author of several books, including a biography of Karl Marx, which won the Isaac Deutscher Prize and is now regarded as one of the definitive sources on the subject. He wrote an award-winning column for The Guardian for several years. He is deputy editor of Private Eye. His collected journalism, Who Has and Passing Frenzies, won him the George Orwell Prize in 2003. His other books include Tom Dryberg, His Life and Indiscretions, and the set text for Little Atoms listeners, How Mumbo Jumbo Conquered the World, A Short History of Modern Delusions. His latest book is Strange Days Indeed, a prequel to, of sorts to Mumbo Jumbo, and it was published by Fourth Estate this month. So we've just said there that um, Strange Days is a prequel to... Mumbo Jumbo. Um, could you explain that? Was was that the intention? <clears throat> um, I'm not sure if it was the original intention, but uh, it swiftly turned out that way because Mumbo Jumbo started in 1979. I mean, my starting—I didn't set out to write the Mumbo Jumbo book as a a guide to um, the new counter-enlightenment of the last 25 or 30 years, but it just um, turned into that. I just wanted to write a book starting in 79, with the arrival of Margaret Thatcher and the Iranian Revolution, the Ayatollah Khomeini the rise of market fundamentalism and uh, religious fundamentalism and how they had set the ideological tone for the following decades uh, and continue to do so. And um, so that started in 79, which seemed to me quite a turning point in modern history. Mm. So with this one, effectively, uh, it was uh, several people had said to me with the mumbo-jumbo book, so are you saying everything was tickety-boo until 79 and then everyone took leave of their senses? I said, no, certainly not. So this is, in a way, an answer to that. It's um, uh, a look at the 1970s and how strange it was and how mad, in many different senses of the word, it was. And possibly, some might conclude, why 
it had to end um, in some form or other. I mean, why by the end of the 70s we'd reached a point. I remember when actually the, the day the Labour government was brought down by no confidence vote in March 79. Um, I was working at the New Statesman at the time and I was out there at the printers on the Wednesday in South End. But the vote was that Wednesday night at 10 o'clock and the printers couldn't wait that long. I mean, they had, we had to make up the pages. So we had two alternative front pages according to whether the government was toppled or not. Uh, and they were made up on plates, and one was called A and one was called B. So one said, you know, so the government lives to fight another day, and the other one said, so the government falls. And I had to go back down to London, uh, follow the Commons vote, and as soon as they came in, I had to ring the printers and say, go with A or go with B, and the government lost. So I rang up and said, go with A, and I then sat up all night thinking, hang on, was it A or was it B, which was the <laughs> right one? Uh, I scarcely slept. I was pacing the streets by about 6 a.m. trying to find some newsstand which might have an early coffee. Uh, but I remember when I finally managed to get one, there was this headline blaring out saying, no confidence, this time something's got to give. And actually, the uh, the no confidence bit of the headline changed in B version, I think. But the, this time something's got to give was the same in both. Whatever had happened that night, there was this sense, something's got to give. And I think in this book gives you some clue as to what that something might be. So let's look at what, what it is that's actually peculiar about the 70s and, um, and why it was like that because right now we're in you know what is supposed to be the mother of all recessions and and there's constant forecasts saying how bad it is and how bad it's going to get and yet in no way is it comparable you know there, there is not you know small groups of men plotting to overthrow the government and things and why did things turn out the way they did in the 70s do you think i think it was a, a really a, a sort of concatenation of uh of different things, um, and varied from place to place, because uh, one of the themes of this book is that there was a... The 70s were marked by an incredibly paranoid style, mm-hmm. you know, from Richard Nixon in America to Chairman Mao in China to Harold Wilson over here, you know, to Idi Amin in Uganda, Pol Pot, and so on. I mean, there's a sort of rampant political paranoia around the world. But that, uh, of course, there were different local factors at play as well, that, uh, for example, in post-colonial Africa, it had reached that particular stage where you know, the post-colonial leaders were grappling with the small problem of how you replace a leader um, without a coup, without an overthrow. And, um, uh, and so there was an epidemic of coups. I think only about three uh, independent countries in Africa didn't have coups in the 1970s. Um, and in, uh, in Soviet Union and China... Um, the post-revolutionary leaders were getting extremely old and were reaching that sort of state of uh, insecurity when you think, blimey, what's going to happen after me? Who is going to succeed me? And you see plots and conspiracies against you everywhere and you start uh, taking action against it and um, imagining all sorts of ghastly things, that sort of twilight world. Uh, so, And I think in Britain it was partly that the, the post-war consensus was um, beginning to fall apart, That uh, partly in the face of economic crisis, uh, butskalism as it used to be called, mm-hmm. that sort of post-war Keynesian consensus that had ruled through the 50s and 60s, uh, somehow didn't seem to be doing the job anymore. I mean, Ted Heath's government from 1970 onwards, I think until between about 1945 and 1970 when Heath became Prime Minister, there were two states of national emergency in the previous 25 years. And Heath was Prime Minister for, what, three and a half years or something, and declared no fewer than five just in that brief period, which gives you a slight indication of how things were going. It was just non-stop crisis and disaster, unemployment rocketing, inflation rocketing, the whole country grinding to a standstill, really, power cuts. I mean, the most memorable, uh, I think the most abiding memory of the Heath years is power cuts and um, 
working by candlelight mm-hmm. and, the, and the three-day week, which he ended up with, uh, and the telly going off at 10 o'clock and all the rest of it. No more floodlit football, so at least there was some compensations. Um, but uh, it was... Uh, and as the, as the 70s wore on, there was increasingly a sense that Britain, in some circles, both actually both on the left and on the right, that Britain was becoming ungovernable, that the old ruling order um, had given up the ghost. Um, and there was odd agreement, actually, on left and right. That revolution was um, probably just around the corner. Uh, the Workers' Revolutionary Party and the International Socialists and all those sorts of people were terrifically excited. They thought, our moment is here at last. Uh, but equally, a lot of people on the right, uh, of a conspiratorial turn of mind, said, they're probably right. We must stop it. So you had retired generals setting up private armies and business leaders trying to organise coups to bring down the government. The managing director of Cunard, the shipping line, actually went to Harold Wilson in about 1975 and said, I think I ought to warn you, Prime Minister, I've just been approached by some Secret Service people asking if I'll make the QE2 available as a floating prison for the Cabinet. Um, actually, one of the 70s ideas that hasn't yet uh, reappeared in the last few months, but perhaps it, perhaps it yet will. I mean, as a, we seem to be heading back there at a rate of knots with uh, economic meltdown, um, terrorist threats, uh, terrorist cells in British cities... Uh, we have, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, the cover of my book says "Absolute Chaos Tonight." Official, which is a genuine Evening Standard headline from 1973, and uh, uh, you now see the headlines almost every other day about postal strikes, rail strikes, some um, imminent power cuts. The Daily Telegraph last week actually had a front page story saying that uh, within two or three years we're going to be getting regular power cuts because we haven't replaced enough power stations. And the headline just said "Return of the 1970s Looms," and I think the very next day the football hooligans went berserk as well. So it does. It does suddenly have a slight flickering, rather alarming sense of deja vu about it all. But we haven't yet reached the stage of, pri- of private armies and generals, uh, which perhaps enough. is the difference, that uh, perhaps because we haven't quite yet exhausted the other possibilities, but we may well reach that point. It's also quite an auspicious time to be releasing this book. Then It's brilliant, because I thought it was some just about the most unpopular, uh, unappealing, <laughs> unfashionable subject one could think of. But then I thought that when I, in the 1990s, when I decided to write a, write a biography of Karl Marx, it was partly in a spirit of perversity. I thought this is the most unpopular thing in the world in the, in the 90s. Uh, there was this idea put about that Marx was now dead and buried and no one need ever bother with him again. And uh, uh, I thought I was, I was surprised that anyone wanted to publish it, frankly, and then even more amazed when it got translated all over the world. So I thought, right, now I'll really push my luck. Write a book about the 70s. <laughs> People run away screaming if you mention the 70s. And um, as if by magic, I mean, as I was writing it, I kept noticing all sorts of odd things happening. I mean, ever since I think Life on Mars went out on television about three years ago, it's just been one 70s revival after another. I remember last end of last year looking at the cinema, uh, and they were showing the Bader-Meinhof complex, mm-hmm. and the next screen had Frost Nixon on, and then I think the one next to that had Milk, the film about Harvey Milk, the 70s, San Francisco gay politician. Um, and then um, the alternative to all that was Mamma Mia, ABBA songs. So <laughs> <laughs> it is straight back to the 70s. So well, you, you just mentioned the Bader-Meinhof film, and you, you, you sort of touched on this previously, but... The 70s was the time when that sort of revolutionary terrorism suddenly became fashionable as well, wasn't it? And you talk about that in the books. Very much, yeah, urban guerrillas. The two Fumaros in Uruguay, I think, were the the great pin-ups. And uh, if you look around the world, I mean, in America, the Weather Underground and the Simonese Liberation Army and the Angry Brigade in Britain and the Bader-Meinhof and the rest of them, I mean, most of them uh, said that they uh, they were inspired by the two Fumaros. This idea of urban guerrillas, you know, that traditionally on the left have been decided that you have to first build a revolutionary party and it's a rather long and tedious process you know um, um, making a, creating a mass movement 
uh, and they thought we can bypass all that. You know, six people in a basement flat, as long as they get a few guns and kidnap the odd um, ambassador, can work wonders and bring the whole state crashing down. And so they did. Uh, they, well, they didn't bring the state crashing down, but they did their best. And uh, I think we we got off comparatively lightly with the Angry Brigade. But on the other hand, we did simultaneously have the Provisional IRA um, waging rather more serious um, war in our, in cities, uh, both in Northern Ireland and over here. Uh, the Angry Brigade, I think, must be unique among urban guerrilla groups in the 70s in that they never actually killed anyone, but um, uh, I think that was more by luck than anything else. Well, let's talk about what they did do, because everyone will obviously be familiar with, with the with the IRA, but the Angry Brigade are, you know, they, they, they you almost present them as, you know, as very sort of, not particularly revolutionary, quite sort of middle class. The slightly cross brigade, I yeah. think, would be more accurate, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So what sort of things did they actually get up to? Well, there's an awful lot of posturing involved. I mean, they used to put out these bulletins, sort of printed with a John Bull printing set, you know, bulletin number four from the Angry Brigade. We are the person sitting next to you on the underground. We have hatred in our hearts and a bomb in our pockets. We are getting closer. It says this vast army. I mean, in fact, it's sort of about six or seven people. Uh, and uh, they were a slightly farcical bunch in a way. But they, I mean, they created terror. Uh, the bomb squad at Scotland Yard was actually set up not in... Re- uh, reaction to the provisional IRA, but to the Angry Brigade. I mean, it then turned its attentions to the IRA quite soon, but it was, uh, you know, persuaded Scotland Yard that it was enough of a threat to have a bomb squad which actually had far more people in than the Angry Brigade itself. Uh, it was... Um, but the, there was an awful lot of that posturing. I mean, the Bader meinhof group, I mean, they were lethal and nasty um, and, uh, apart from anything else, anti-Semitic as well, and, uh, and uh, very odd, given that they were set up as a reaction against what they regarded as the failure of Germany to cleanse itself of the Nazi stain. And uh, cre- they said that the performance society in West Germany created sort of mental disorders in the population. So they then thought, I know how we'll put those mental disorders right, create even more paranoia um, and go around behaving like Nazis, uh, which they duly did. Uh, but again, with them, there's an element of posturing. I, mean, I think Carlos the Jackal, who I also mentioned in the book, was an sort of emblematic figure of the period, uh, that uh, remember when he kidnapped um, the OPEC ministers at their meeting in Vienna in 1975 and uh, took them out onto the tarmac. He spent half his time signing autographs and pos- posing for the cameras in his leather jacket, waving a gun about. And uh, rather like that picture of Patty Hearst taken during a bank robbery when she was uh, when she was turned by the Symbionese Liberation Army. I mean, there was a kind of you know a Che style glamour about all that sort of thing, wearing a beret. I mean, I'm sure the generation of people um, certainly when I was at school. Uh, used to have a poster of Che on the wall alongside Mick Jagger and, um, I don't know, uh, some... Who was, who was that actress? What was she called? Rackle Welsh. Um, and it wasn't that they were necessarily supporters, political supporters of Che. It was just he looked cool in the way mm. that Mick Jagger looked cool in the 60s. And I think there was a lot of sort of posturing and swaggering. And it's now... Uh, they've got what they deserved and what they probably wanted in that uh, it is now purely a fashion statement. I mean, you could go to department stores in Germany now and actually buy clothing from a range called Prada Meinhof. Um, and you can buy the old <laughs> RAF, the old Prada Meinhof T-shirts and their berets and their um, Ray-Ban shades at inflated prices, just so you too can look like Andreas Bader and imagine that you're a hip urban gorilla gunslinger. So and people, I mean, obviously in, in, in Europe with Bader Meinhof and, and in Italy and elsewhere, it was, you know, the, this kind of revolutionary movement was rather more serious. But um, the way people, I suppose, people like us talk about, you know, you know, terrorist movements today is that there's a definite kind of nihilism to it. Um, but in the 70s, I mean, you know, were these groups, was there, was there more of a specific program, was there an agenda, or was it just this kind of out, kind of lashing out? No, I think it was. It was largely nihilist. I mean, it was the, 
none of them ever... Re- well, one or two. I mean, specifically the provisional IRA and the PLO and the PFLP, the Palestinian mm-hmm. groups. I mean, they had clearly stated mm-hmm. objectives and demands, you know, for a Palestinian state or for, uh, reunif- for unification of Ireland. But apart from that, I mean, most of the others, you know, the, the Red Brigades in Italy or the Japanese Red Army, I mean, they were a very odd crew, the Japanese Red Army, um, sort of kamikaze descendants. Uh, it was entirely in this list. I mean, there was no um, program, no set of demands, really. It was just, we hate you. It was, in a sense, I think, an expression of just sort of middle-class guilt and angst. Um, um, and it was essentially, they were almost all essentially middle-class, as indeed were the two Pomaros. Uh, uh, and I think it was just um, university graduates who were sort of a bit peeved that the the 60s had fizzled out, uh, that you know, the great high watermark of 68 had been and gone. And some of them, some people of that generation went off and you know, passed their accountancy exams or whatever, or went off and lived in a commune and got their heads together, man. Uh, but some others decided that 68 had failed because they hadn't been militant and violent enough and they had to take up arms and swagger around and let off bombs and kidnap people. Uh, and so I think that the element of nihilism is there. And also, I mean, I do think that today's terrorist movements have learned a lot from there. I mean, it was the first time, in a way, that there had been this sort of mass... Uh, terrorist, not mass in the sense of numbers, but in the sense of uh, attention uh, and the number of uh, groups involved around the world, all sort of loosely linked. I mean, that's the other thing, the sort of, you know, the cell structure, but the sense that they are all in, you know, there was a sort of connection between them. Uh, And I think the use of the media in particular, the sense of importance of making a spectacle, I mean, skyjackings, most notably. I mean, the 70s are punctuated by a lot of uh, spectacular stunts and skyjackings and things like that. And you can see with things like the events of 9-11, that uh, the modern-day uh, successors to these terrorists have learned a lot from that, uh, even when you know, Osama bin Laden issues videos and things. I mean, they do understand how to use the media, how to grab attention, um, and I'm sure a lot of that comes from uh, what was learned in the 70s, that even you know, a smallish group, and obviously Al-Qaeda is a rather bigger group than, say, the Angry Brigade, can make a tremendous uh, scare in the world and uh, get itself onto the front pages by shrewd use of the media and images and spectaculars. You're listening to Little Atoms with me, Neil Denny, and with Padre Greedy, and we're talking to Francis Ween about his book Strange Days Indeed and the 1970s. Francis, let's talk about another one of the um, the episodes that you that you talk about in the book. You just mentioned the, the idea of the 70s being some, some sort of hangover from the from the 1960s. And I want to look at the, the Oz trial and the sort of um, obscenity trials that were going on around that time there's fantastic scenes in the book of of three hippies in a courtroom totally misunderstood by the um by the establishment and the establishment decided that they were going to get these guys they were made to represent a whole movement rather than the actual yes i think that that, i think that's true i think it was an attempt to sort of snuff out what you might call the ludic spirit the playful spirit of uh, and and slightly anarchistic spirit of the, of the late 60s, um, which Richard Neville very much embodied, the editor of Oz, the founder of Oz. I mean, he actually wrote a book called Play Power, uh, you know, The Power of Play, mm-hmm. um, and uh, a mischief, and sub, you know, not subversion in the political sense so much as just the cultural sense. Um, and um, they had to be made an example of. Uh, so it was the longest obscenity trial in British history, incredibly. Uh, and it went on for six weeks. Uh, went actually into the summer recess when judges are meant to go off on their holidays. It went on so long. And half of those six weeks, three of the six weeks, were given over to 
arguments about Rupert Bear and the size of his penis. Uh, it's incredible in retrospect, but they had a because they had a, a comic strip in the school kids Oz, which caused a lot of trouble, in which the face of Rupert Bear was superimposed on a character in a Robert Cum Crumb cartoon, the underground cartoons. So Rupert Bear appeared to be having sex with a granny. Um, and there were all these exchanges and cross-examinations. I, I think I can probably find one or two here, but uh, expert witnesses, psychiatrists, and goodness knows who else, were um, grilled about uh, uh, about the size of Rupert Bear's penis, what, old, what age he was, um, and all this sort of thing. Uh, can I find it anywhere? Yes, here we are. For example, um, uh, Edward de Bono, one of the defence witnesses, uh, was asked by the prosecution counsel, what do you suppose is the effect intended to be of equipping Rupert Bear with such a large-sized organ? And Debono said, well, I don't know enough about bears to know their exact proportions. And the barrister pressed on. <laughs> Mr. Debono, why is Rupert Bear equipped with a large organ? To which all Debono could say was, well, what size do you think would be natural? And so it went on week after week. I and mean, the judge had to keep saying he, he'll clear the public gallery if people don't stop laughing. But it's very hard not to laugh when these people who printed a cartoon of Rupert Bear are charged with, and actually this is worth reading out, what, they, what they, the three editors stood charged with, uh, which could have given them unlimited prison sentences because it was a conspiracy charge conspiring to produce a magazine containing diverse, lewd, indecent and sexually perverted articles, cartoons, drawings and illustrations with intent thereby to debauch and corrupt the morals of children and young persons within the realm and to arouse and implant in their minds lustful and perverted desires. And as I said, the use of a conspiracy charge actually meant that there was no limit to the sentences Judge Argyle could have imposed. And given half a chance, he would have done, because Argyle made it clear from the outset that he thought these three hairy hippies must be um, sent down for as long as possible. Um, but um, uh, unfortunately for him, the appeal court thought otherwise and uh, released them afterwards, after they'd been sent for psychiatric examination, which found that they were perfectly sane, but just not entirely happy with the thought of having their hair cut and putting on a suit and a tie. So this, I mean, the, this is seen, and for certainly in kind of free expression terms and more broadly, the the also tried to seem as a key moment in as maybe a kind of final kind of hurrah for that kind of ruling class moral authoritarianism. Mm. Um, so does, I mean, do can it be seen as post that you know that led on to the further in some ways that what happened in the seventies, moreover, with different things, is also part of that collapse of a kind of. You know, a ruling class. <laughs> I think it is, yes, because yeah. I think, well, in a way, the Chatterley trial mm-hmm. uh, had begun that. Um, the slight difference being that the Lady Chatterley trial, just over ten years earlier, was brought against Penguin Books, perfectly respectable publisher, and it was very noticeable there, you know, that the defendants were all chaps in suits who looked very much like, um, uh, you know, the prosecution team or, or indeed the judge and were probably belonged to the same kind of clubs. Uh, and it was a novel by D.H. Lawrence who was, you know, on the English syllabus and all the rest of it. So although it was an obscenity trial, in, in, that, in that sense was similar, I think there was a slight cultural difference about it. With the Oz trial, there was very much a sense that these were people who did not belong to the same clubs as the judge and the prosecution and were therefore not really going to play by the rules and had to be shut up and made an example of. Um, there is There was one of the many subtexts to this, which came out shortly afterwards, because uh, people said, well, how come they're prosecuting this school kids Oz for obscenity when there are all these far more obscene magazines on on display and on sale in Soho shops and the police never seem to prosecute them and uh, uh, the Home Secretary Reginald Maudling asked the police about this and uh, 
the head of the BBC and Publications Squad said, oh, oh, no, I don't think you'll find as much in the way of uh, pornography available in Soho, uh, which didn't really persuade him. And they set up a little inquiry. And in due course, uh, a large number of the senior people at Scotland Yard were um, convicted of corruption, including uh, the man who was behind the, a lot of these prosecutions, a man called George Fenwick, head of the obscene publication squad. He was done, as was a man called Commander Wally Virgo. Um, they, uh, they were all on the take from the pornographers in Soho, which is why they didn't raid them but did prosecute the underground press. But the odds, I mean, the ironic uh, consequence of it, the beneficiaries of the, uh, you know, the freeing of the Oz editors, the biggest beneficiary, I would say, was probably Rupert Murdoch and more generally, you know, the, the, uh, the mass media. Because once it was clear that you couldn't be done for obscenity, uh, or at least it was going to be too embarrassing for the state to bring many more obscenity prosecutions, uh, that coincided exactly with the arrival of uh, Rupert Murdoch at the Sun and the advent of the Page Three Girl. And suddenly there was nudity in national daily newspapers, unheard of before. And, I mean, now if you look at any newsstand, you know, row after row of uh, you know, whatever they're called, nuts and heat and all... I mean, any magazine you care to take off the stands has the most astonishing amount of uh, stuff which would have been deemed obscene uh, until the beginning of the 70s. Uh, so it did open up this uh, fantastic, I mean, not just in magazines, but, you know, in, in everything imaginable, um, commodification of um, what would once have been called obscenity. Uh, once they got the all clear, um, in moved uh, the commodifiers and the uh, the corporations to uh, make a few bob out of it. So they, uh, they, they, I think they ought to pay a small commission, probably, to Richard Neville and the Oz editors <laughs> for making it possible. <laughs> Just to f- finish off then, we, we often talk about conspiracy theories on the show, so it, it, it probably makes sense to talk about a conspiracy theory that did actually happen. And um, I'm talking about Watergate, of course, and the personage of Richard Nixon sort of hangs very heavily over the, over this entire book. Was Nixon sort of an anomaly, or do you just think, you know, he he was typical of this time? You know, he's, 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 he's always stood up as being, you know, a particularly paranoid... American president who was particularly secretive and and that, but but do you think he was actually more atypical, really? Well, he was typical of um, the people who were running the world at the mm. time. I and mean, when I mentioned the book, when his his famous visit to uh, to China to see Chairman Mao, they recognised each other as kindred spirits mm-hmm. straight away. Both extremely paranoid people who saw enemies everywhere and plots against them everywhere. So, um, uh, despite the so-called political divide, actually they were they were um, soulmates. Um, and had a lot more in common than Nixon did with anyone else in, in the White House or outside it. But I think the importance of, of Watergate in particular is that, as you say, there have always been conspiracy theories, there's always been levels of political paranoia that goes up and down, but uh, I think until the beginning of the 70s, it was by and large um, political paranoia in America, say, was the preserve of fringe, people on the fringe, and usually on the right-wing fringe, and the difference is in the 70s, it suddenly became the default position for millions of um, fairly ordinary people. Uh, because suddenly, it turned out there were conspiracies and things that until then might have just been said by a few long-haired loons uh, who could be dismissed as uh, raving nutters, saying, oh, you know, the CIA is some uh, experimenting with LSD or the FBI is spying on us all, um, turned out to be true. Because in the wake, wake of Watergate, there were all these Senate and congressional inquiries into the intelligence networks in America and it found out all sorts of things about assassination plots and the whole caboodle and suddenly all the uh, the fears that have been voiced by say, a few people on the fringes 
um, turned out to be true. And so it then became a reasonable working assumption that not just politicians, but the corporations and other institutions, the police, the judges, whoever, were up to no good and were um, indeed plotting against the interests of the people in one way or another. And so it it aroused this, I mean, the trust in politicians, you can measure it, the University of Michigan does surveys every four years, uh, not just in politicians, but everyone, even in doctors, you know, in all sort of people regarded as official, absolutely plummets in the 1970s, and I don't think it's ever really recovered once you lose that trust. And you can see it to this day, you know, if you watch a Michael Moore film or an Oliver Stone film or even actually the Jason Bourne trilogy, uh, that, that political paranoia uh, is still with us. I mean, it's, uh, and that's that conspiracist approach to life. Uh, and I think it does date back to to Watergate and what went on with it. But you, you mentioned those films, but of course that's not new because you also talk about all of the all of the great conspiracy theories, conspiracy theory films of the 1970s. Oh, it's fantastic! Because the one joy of writing, one of the many joys of writing a book about the 70s, was I could spend all my time watching the Parallax View, all the President's Men, the Conversation, the Godfather, Apocalypse Now, and uh, pretend it was research <laughs> rather than pure pleasure. We're out of time, so Francis, thank you very much for for joining us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.